0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're right in the middle of Paul's very tight argument that he's making about the role of the law, purpose of the law, what it does in us for salvation, why it has to be. Be moved out of the way while the old has to go, and the, and the new ha- has to come. And in one sense, we've, we've acknowledged that Romans chapter Romans chapter seven is uh, is some tough sledding, if you will. Your temptation is just to start reading it, and then it kind of get convoluted, and you just read really fast so you can get through it to get to chapter eight, um, or you 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 just kind of check out uh, check out altogether. I can't understand it, so I, I move on. But there, there must be a reason that it's here, right? I mean, God, the inspiration, brought about by the Holy Spirit of God, knows that we need this, and we need the logical argument, which we need to, which means we need to understand the bits and the details that that Paul is is giving here. If, if we actually want to to drink in the the significance of chapter eight, the the life in the spirit. You need to understand chapter 7 before you can embrace that. So we're working bit by bit through Paul's explanation about the law in this chapter and a believer's new relationship to it, why that relationship had to change. And he's labored in these first six verses to show us why the law had to give way to grace. It cannot save, the law cannot save, it cannot even sanctify. Therefore, it had to be removed. It it, it, its dominion had, to, had, to, had to, to die off, if you will, for the, for the believer. And the apostle gave his, the summary about this change in verse 4. Look at verse 4 of Romans 7. He says, Therefore, my brethren, here, here's his point. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And and then he went on to explain further what what he means by that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. For B.C. For while we were in the flesh, before we came to Christ, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear the fruit of death. The sinful passions... We're at work in the members of our body, and those sinful passions were aroused, were stirred up by the by the law. That, that's why the law could not do the work that was needed. When it's combined with our fallen nature, Paul says, the results are deadly. It is holy and righteous and, and good. It's virtuous. But as an external standard only, it has no power to... to to conquer the internal rule of sin, the internal power power of sin. An external standard can't change that, can't triumph over that. But the law was never God's final plan. You would at verse 6. He says, but now, having been released from the law, it was never God's final plan. Having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, we were once bound to it, So that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. God's old covenant, represented by the the letter of law, was always supposed to give way to the new covenant, which is now mighty in the Spirit. There is power in the new covenant, work of the Holy Spirit of God. It was always God's plan. That's what Paul has been declaring. The new has come, that's the good news of the gospel. And this chapter is explaining how this change took, took place and why this change had to take place. Paul says there's been a fundamental shift in the way we relate to the law of God as believers. The, the law still has the work that we'll even talk about this morning in the hearts of unbelievers, but in the hearts of somebody who's regenerate, somebody who's been, who's been joined to Christ, somebody who's been empowered by the Spirit and changed. There's, there's, there's a new work. There's a, a new relationship. We've been loosed from the law's dominion. An unbeliever is still under the law's dominion. A believer has been loosed from its dominion. And and this change was described as death, brought about by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of this change, we're now able to truly serve God. Or as Paul put it, it, we can bear spiritual fruit. Not in the old way, which, which involved merely law or standards, but in newness brought and empowered by the Holy Spirit who now indwells us in fullness. You you can summarize Paul's teaching from verses 1 through 6 in two parts. You, You are no longer under the law's authority, made clear by this marriage illustration and death, and that this new relationship in Christ is spiritually fruitful. Kind of a basic summary of what he says. You're now able to bear fruit. Those are the two primary ways the law hinders the unsaved man. The law cannot save a person because we're under, as an unsaved person, we're under the law's authority like a, like a wife to her husband. And therefore, it, it can only condemn us because we're sinful. Also, the law stirs up our sin nature towards additional sin, which she's going to tell us more about today. In verses 4-6, through six, he described the end result of that work. We bear fruit of death instead of fruit for God. We were we made to be image bearers and bear fruit for God but because of our sin natures, when it bumps up against the law, it does nothing but, but bears more fruit, more deadly fruit. That's his teaching about the law and the, and the gospel, which, which then makes some wonder just what Paul thinks about the law. I mean, has he completely left all of his Jewish roots whenever he, he bought into this, this Messiah, Jesus? I mean, is he saying the law's bad? Is he saying it's sinful? Is it blamable then for, the, for, for its, this effect on, on sinners? And Paul responds, God forbid. May that never be said. The law of God is holy and righteous and good. The law that existed in your hearts in the Mosaic Covenant is, is holy and righteous and, and good. And, and then he explains why the law is, is not the problem the people are wondering this not only because of what he says in in chapter 7 but but what he what he said back in in chapter 5 he started this started this whole thing he declared at the end of chapter 5 that that we're under the the reign of, of grace now that the now that the gospel has has come not under the law like we were before and he declares there's one of the main reasons that God brought the law in the first place in, in this verse, he says it was so that transgression would become plain. Look at how verse five, or chapter 5, verse 20 begins. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Paul says the law was brought in alongside God's, God's promise of grace. It was never God's plan for salvation. It was added and added for a purpose that that initially sounded counterintuitive. And it sounds counterintuitive. I mean, how could the law be good? And then the law be brought in in order to increase transgression. Which it's It was bewildering to hear for people who thought the law was a means of salvation and, and holiness. And Paul bluntly says, the law cannot save you in chapter 2 and 3. In Romans 5, right here, he says it was never meant to. In chapter 7, he's explaining why it can't save you, why it has no power, why the relationship to the law needs to change. It was never God's final plan. Because it couldn't be. It has no power to deal with indwelling sin. It has a specific work that we're looking at, but, but, but it has no power to, to take away your sin nature and deal with your real problem. The law of Moses was added some 430 years later alongside God's plan of salvation. It came by grace, through faith, was promised to Abraham. And it was added to serve a purpose, which was partially to help us see the utter sinfulness of our sin, which is a prerequisite to the gospel, by the way. I mean, seeing your sin for, for what it is is necessary before you'll take what God graciously offers in, in, in Jesus. And just as there was a purpose to add the law in God's plan of redemption, just as there was a moment and a purpose for bringing it in, end, the, the, there's now a necessary death to it, where, where God God removes it for, for the believer, removes the authority over a believer, since Christ has come. That's so what verse 4 says, "Therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. I mean the law was once God's central focus. when He was revealing our need, when He was preparing people for the coming Messiah. Now that Christ has come, the law's work changes. Under the Old Covenant, the law reigned and brought condemnation, so, so a change had to take place. Paul is explaining that change. We died to its jurisdiction as well as to its condemnation. We had to. We need, that needed to happen. And now in Christ, we what we can never do under the law, we, we can by the Spirit. which is what chapter 8 will detail for us. I mean, he said, we've died to the law so that we might belong to another. We belong to another in order that we might bear fruit to God. And we can bear fruit now because we serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. That's the first part that that he covered here. There are actually three explanations or sections that he gives. We're in number two, where he defends the virtue uh, of the law. And he describes a an illustration then worked out in, in real life, his own life, in verses 13 through through 25. And after this very practical illustration about death and marriage, Paul immediately begins to defend the law's honor. And he begins to explain its worthy work. And he emphatically says in, in the verses that we're in, the law is not sin. It's not the originator of sin, but it does have a specific work. When it comes in contact with sinners has a very particular work, which actually makes our condition worse, not, not better. He describes three virtuous works the, the law performs in the sinner. He, he says the law works to reveal sin, the law revs up sin, which is what we'll look at today, and the law helps us actually recognize the power of sin, but it doesn't change us. It can't change us. We said last time the first virtuous work the law performs is it, is it actually reveals sin to us and in us. Look, if you would, at verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. So he, so he asks the obvious question so he can answer it. What his detractors were thinking was Paul's message denigrated the law, reduced the law, or even worse, made it responsible for sin in in somehow. And they were saying, if what you're teaching about the law is true, Paul, then then you're saying it is the real problem, or at least it's part of the problem. How could that be? And so Paul, point blanks asks, point blank asks, is that true? And, And then he answers, heaven forbid, don't blame God or his law for that. While the law doesn't save and it increases transgression, the law is not responsible for sin. So so don't blame it. It is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. But what it does do is it reveals sin in us and to us. To us first and and then in us. I mean, the law reveals God's righteous standards. And so when we look into the mirror of the law, we're able to see how how short we've fallen, which is, what, which is what sin means. For all have sinned, and they fall short of the, of the glory of God. I mean, the law, if you will, reveals God's backboard and rim, and so we can see our shots actually in air ball. When, when we're thinking, we're just shooting the shot, and we think, I mean, that close. It had to have been that close. And the law comes along and says, it's not even an air ball. We're shooting at the opposite basket. We're not even shooting in the right direction. Without the law, we still shoot the bullets of sin. Sin's still there. But we can't see how far from the target that they actually hit. Now everyone listening to Paul would agree with that. The the law shows us what is sinful and that's a good thing. To which Paul has already said, in essence, you're right. That is a good thing. It's it's a good thing that the law shows us sin with its light. But, But the end result of that is not good for us as sinners. Because we are sinners and under the under sin's power, the light simply shows us all of our dirt, but it but it can't clean us. It can't clean us up. And it can't do anything without with what's in me actually generating sin to begin with. And he says it actually goes further than just acting as a as a light externally. It, it, you might think of it more like a like an X-ray or a black light that shows us the lint on our heart been in something like that, maybe in an amusement park or, or somewhere else where you, you walk into a, you know, into a room that has a black light and the next thing you look, whoa, I had no idea. I had all that stuff all over me. So the law works. Shows you what you can't see. That's what he says in verse 7. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. That's the general statement. For I would not have known about coveting. I would not have known about illicit desires that were active in my heart if the law had said, you shall not have those. You shall not covet." I mean, Paul says when he actually read the Torah with opened eyes, he saw his sin. Not just sin, but, but his sin. And, and through the law, he was able to see the depth of it. He makes a general statement and then gives a specific example of what he means. He, he says the law helped me see sin in general. It helped me see sin. What is good? And what is bad, right, and wrong, and what God defines as wrong. But it also did more than that. It it, it turned the light on my heart and it revealed sin on a desire level. It it actually showed me the source of these external actions, these things that that I I was doing. It it actually showed me where murder comes from. It's anger in my heart. How dare you you do that to me or take something from me? It, It actually shows me where where being unfaithful to my covenant comes from. It, it actually comes from desires, lustful desires in my heart. He says, let me give you a specific example. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not lust for forbidden things. Now, now, try to hear what Paul's saying here behind that word. We hear thou shall not covet, that's a familiar word. But what does that word mean? The word is epithumia, which is the word for for a an elicit, elicited longing. It's a it's a desire for something forbidden. I mean, to be covetous means to to have a a lust for something that's not yours to have. Paul will use the the word concupiscence in in your King James and your. Verse today. What does that mean? It's just this, it's this nasty, wicked desire that's that's in there. This is the reason that Paul picks the, the tenth commandment. It's because it's the best example of how the law exposes me on a desire level. It doesn't just show me sin externally, but in me, in my mind, in, in my longings. Thou shalt not desire forbidden things is the one commandment that unmistakably deals with the motives of, of my heart. And, my, and I see the law, and I say, what forbidden things? These things are forbidden. Whoa! I want that forbidden thing and that forbidden thing. Look at what is going on in my heart. And so the law shows us our outward failings, but also our inward iniquity as well, which is exactly what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's, He said, you have heard, you should not commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've broken the law. The law reigns over our motives as well as our actions. And Paul says, I, I, I would have never known what wrong desire I actually had had the commandment not spelled that out for me. And then when I started considering what the commandment said, I was able to see it. It's not that Paul wasn't coveting or desiring wrong things before the Ten Commandments, but when that specific commandment came, it, it actually revealed what he shouldn't desire." revealed his desire for his neighbor's olive grove and the grumbling in his heart toward God for not giving it to him. The word Paul uses here we said last time for knowing means not just recognizing it but grasping something. Most experientially. The written commandment whenever it is given by God holds up a list of definitions that we can look to. Then I say I see that God says that's wrong. Paul uses a word that says it goes beyond just recognition of a tablet of writing. But... But in defining sin objectively, but he says because of sin in us, it acts like a selfie without filters. It shows us what we actually look like versus what we think we look like. That's a work of the law. It reveals sin experientially, not just theoretically. You see that as a sinner before Christ or the world today, they, people have no problem admitting there's evil in the world. It's usually everybody else is evil, but I'm not. They have no problem, though, with admitting evil in the world, but it's when God shows the evil in us that it becomes personal, right? The law does more than just reveal. It, it also excites sin. It, it revs it up. The second virtuous work that the law performs is it actually revs up sin. There's nothing wrong with it. When it comes in contact with, with an unsaved person, with a sinner before Christ... It actually stirs sin up. Look at verse 8. He says, but sin, I mean, there's the problem. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me, coveting of every kind, concupiscence of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. You know the joke about if you leave your, your children in... In kids' ministry, too long after service, the teachers are going to fill them with red Kool-Aid and sugar packets before you, you pick them up, right? Well, Paul says the law has a similar effect on sin. It jacks it up. Much worse, though, than crazy children. In mean, the first part of verse 8 here, Paul's elaborating on what he means at the end of, end of verse 7. I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, "Not thou shalt not covet. He said, the the law helped me see the true nature of my desires, how corrupt they truly are. But it did something more than that. It actually became an opportunity for more sin. It's like a launching pad. The law was like a launching pad and it produced in me all kinds of illicit desires. I mean, he describes sin as a power. Here, he, he says it seized an occasion. It's a power that seizes an occasion, a good occasion, an occasion when the light of God's law comes into in, into your life through the entrance of the commandment itself, and it it, it uses that moment, it used that tool to produce every kind of illicit desire that you can imagine. And then he explains further by by saying, in fact, without the law, sin. Lies dead, meaning it's latent. It's in there. It's dormant, kind of like a like a tumor that only needs a stimulus to spread. The law is that that stimulus, which has a whole new dimension, to what Paul what, what Paul's saying. I mean, this is something his detractors didn't understand at all. They understood the first part. It reveals sin. They might not have understood revealing sin in me, which is why Jesus has to to do what he did in the Sermon on the Mount, but but this is a whole other level. Whoa, whoa, what, what do you mean, Paul? In fact, this would be entirely new ground for someone trusting in the law, which is exactly why Paul goes here. I mean, this second work is even more vital to grasp than the law's work of revelation. If you hope to see your need of the gospel. Verse 8 is what Paul means by the law, reveals to us the sinfulness of our sin. It doesn't just show us sin, it actually stirs up more. Or you could say, it shows us just how bad our problem really is. I mean, the law doesn't take away sin, it actually acts like ether to its engine. Revs it up. Look at verse 5. He says, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, skip over that that second part, the sinful passions were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit of death. Now add it back in. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members. So sin's already there at work, and it's bearing the fruit of death, but the law arouses it. Paul says, in my unsafe state, my... My desires that led to sin were stirred up. They were excited by the law all the more. And the ignition point was when the commandment came in, when the, when the light of God's law comes in. That this is what happens in the, part of, part of what happens in the unsaved heart. He says the more specific the law is, the more it reveals what we're doing, and then the more it stirs up sin. And it then exerts a greater evil influence. It increases sinful desires. I mean, what a hopeless picture. I mean, if there wasn't a gospel before chapter 7 and you didn't know what was coming, you would read this and say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. I mean, this is a hopeless picture. A sinner being under the law. That's the kind of power you're dealing with as as a sinner. You know, you're going to reform that? You're going to pull that up by your own bootstraps? You're going to, you're going to change your ways? You're going to turn over a new leaf? Give me a break. Paul describes sin as a powerful ruler that works in our fallen nature. How strong is it? It's so strong that it can use God's holy law to its advantage. Or to use his word from verse 9, sin springs to life with the commandment. Look at verse 9. We'll not get there today, but it's coming next week. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive. Sin sprang to life. The entrance of the commandment brings light. And that, that, that that's like the shot of evil. It was in there. Sin was in there. But when the particular light of the law came, that was like providing oxygen to an already low-burning flame. It was like applying moisture and warmth to yeast and dough. The law and the light are not bad, but the reaction to it, the sin, is deadly. You may have seen this too. I saw a news video this past week of a, a firefighter that was going into an industrial fire. I think it was. It looked like a warehouse. So he begins to open the door, and it's burning on the inside. He opens the door, and whenever he does, you can just see this wall of smoke, and it just... It just recedes, it just sucks in, almost like, a, like, like before a tidal wave. And then all of a sudden, it's just this engulf, this guy's engulfed in this massive fireball, huge. Thankfully, he's okay to get all this protective gear on. But Paul says that's what sin is like. When the law opens the door and its air comes in, it's like a backdraft on a, on a burning house. It's like an explosive fire stirs up in me, takes an opportunity, and produces in me all manner of illicit desires. Notice again, Paul's using personal pronouns here. Verse 8, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me. Every kind of covenant. This is talking about his own personal experience here before, before he comes to Christ. It's also everyone else's experience the law, and their sinners. Adams, Israels, as well as Paul's and ours. And in everyone where sin reigns as a monarch in power, the, the law increases that king's power. It doesn't reduce his power, it actually increases the power. Which is why the law produces death, not life in us when we encounter it. And the more law we encounter, the more condemnation, because it actually stirs up more, more sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, there's the problem. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, coveting of every kind, For apart from the law, sin is dead. Tom Schreiner said sin was awakened with the arrival of the specific commandments. And like a beast of prey, it's poised to leap upon its victim. But the actual jump occurs only when the commandment is enunciated. It's like the, the dog whistle. Sin uses to, to launch. I think there are three keys to understanding what Paul means in, in, in verse verse eight here. And the first is is what he means by this taking opportunity, but sin taking opportunity through the command. What does he mean by that? He, he means sin, sin seizes the occasion. Taking the occasion or taking opportunity means a, means it's a place that you set out from, like the like a trailhead. He says sin uses the law. When the law enters, uh, sin uses the law like a trailhead to start its hike deep into the mountains of your heart. The word can also be used like a, a base for military operations, a military campaign. It's like a staging area. The law is the staging area for, for sin. The power of sin in me uses the law as this the staging point. You might think of the images that you saw you know, three or four weeks ago when Israel was amassing troops outside outside Gaza. They were staging for war. They hadn't gone to war yet. They're staging. So the entrance of the law, the, with the entrance of the law, sends troops amassed in, in the place of the commandment to launch an offensive. The law is what gathers the troops. Sin uses it to marshal its powers to war. War against your own soul. There's nothing wrong with the ground the troops gather on. The law is good. The problem is the traitorous commander he uses it wrongly. That, that's what's evil. Lloyd-Jones well, says you could also see this, this word, take occasion, uses as a military campaign or like a trailhead. Lloyd-Jones well, says it also has the idea of like a fulcrum. The law is like a fulcrum. It, it makes sin's work easier. I mean. The law comes in and sin uses the law like a block for leverage. So it lifts its payload faster and farther than without it. So, first, there's, if you want to understand verse 8, it's this taking opportunity. Second, though, he says it produces something. Not only sees an opportunity, seizes an opportunity, produces in me coveting of every kind. All manner of desires is produced by the law. The law interacts with the, with the sinner. It's the word to work or to produce. And he intensifies this word, makes it emphatic, draws attention to it. I mean, sin ceases to seizes the chance, I should say, to 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 work. And when it goes to work, it it's like a snapping turtle. It won't let go of its prey. It's like a and it starts its work, it's like a like a crocodile that latches on and won't stop until its teeth touch. I mean the word means to start something and not stop until the end goal is accomplished. Seizes the opportunity, goes to work, and will not stop until it stirs up more and more sin. That's what sin does. It produces its crop without fail. And then finally, I think you you understand this, this last phrase. Which is an explanation. Look at the end of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So sin's the problem. It takes an opportunity. It uses the entrance of the commandment, through the commandment, as a staging ground for military offensive. It then unleashes the power of war. It produces in me. And that stirs up all kinds of things in me. Because without the law, sin lies dead. You have to understand that last part. Sin is dead. Well, what does that mean? It means that sin's already there. It's like a sleeping virus. And Paul says sin is like the sediment that's in the bottom of a seemingly clear pool. Many people think that they're moral. They're pretty good folks until they actually start considering what the Bible says. And then when that happens, the law comes in like a stick and it Stirs up the water, stirs up the sediment in the heart. Sin was in there, but it was latent. It was sediment in the bottom until the law came in. Sin's like mold spores that settle on the air ducts in a vacant house, and the law is like the like the fan on the air handler that blows them everywhere whenever it's turned on. The law comes in and it blows the blows the spores all over the place. Sin's like dust. We use that example. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you remember when Pilgrim comes in the house? pulls out the broom of the law. He tries to clean. <laughs> dust clouds everywhere. Sin's like dust, and the law's like the broom. that stirs it into a cloud. can't take it away. It's not until the, the maid comes in with the, with the water, the spirit, that the, the dust is washed away. Of course, the sin is partially dormant without the law. It's there, but it's not agitated into activity. In the same way that whenever the law enters, and that brings me to a question, as I'm looking at this verse, trying to understand. So, how exactly does that? Does it do that work? I mean, okay, it's a, it's in there, and then the, the light of the law comes in, and it stages a military campaign, and and it goes to the end. It won't stop until that comes and whenever it as it's going about that campaign it stirs up all kinds of chaos all kinds of illicit desires what does that look like what, what does that look like in in a sinner's life he's talking here about what the law did in you before you came to Christ and if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ you're a sinner you're, you're condemned you, you've never been saved this is the work that the law's still doing in you what does that law what does that work look like what does the agitation look like when when sin is using the law in us? I think you can actually summarize that in three ways. And I think you'll relate to this when you you think back to your unsaved days. And you may even feel some of this today. As a believer, you're in an already not yet state. Sin is no longer your master, no longer your dominion. You don't have to listen, but you still have unredeemed flesh, which can, which can spark up a little bit. Be careful when you feel these sparks. This this is this is an engulfing fire before you're saved. And now you have to be careful to not let, not listen to the to the voice of the old master again. I, I think it would summarize this work that sin does by co-opting the law in three ways. First of all, it stirs up rebellion in them. What does it look like whenever the law comes in. Does it mean it stirs? What does it rev up? Well, actually, it revs up or stirs up rebellion. It stirs up a bowing of our heart's back. Stiffening of our neck, if you want to use the Bible. My neck is generally stiff. The law comes in and tells me, don't do this, and you must do that, and my neck gets really stiff. It's a sin. That's what happens when the law comes in, and comes to me in. in in any clear form. My heart's response is, is, who is anyone or anything to tell me what to do? Stirs up rebellion. And that's why the people rail against the, the truth of the Bible. It's not because they think the, that's going to produce bad outcomes, it's because it's an authority that's claiming a higher rank than their own hearts and demanding their allegiance. That, that's their problem. That was your problem before, before you bowed the knee the reign of Christ to His Word. I mean, mean, who would argue, or who could argue, that teaching children the Ten Commandments and hanging those in a school could be bad in any way? What a horrible thing, teaching children not to murder, lie, or steal. Do you think that's going to have a bad outcome? What bad outcome could that have? That's not the point. The point's not the outcome. The point is that there's a law there at all. That's what they have a problem with. They say no one will demand that of me, no one will tell me what to do, no, no one will tell my child what to do. You see, the Bible says sin is lawless by nature. You ever think about this? 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I mean, sin in us is the rebellious sense that I can't be held to any standard. I am lawless. I reject the law. I rebel against the law. I am lawless. That's what you inherited from Adam. you're, you're, You're lawless at heart before you come to Christ. A rebel that refuses to be ruled by anyone, especially God. And every human being born in Adam is born with a bald fist toward their Creator, and when his voice is heard through the law calling them to obey, that, that fist begins to shake. That neck begins to get stiff. That back begins to bow. It generates rebellion. The law turns sin into transgression. you understand the difference between sin and transgression? I mean, sin means to fall short of, of, of the target. but the but, but, but the law draws a line. And so there's a transgression. You, you transgress the line. I mean, law makes sin a rebellious transgression instead of an unspecific shortcoming. The law draws the line, a very clear one in our rebellious nature, then steps over it. And when we do that, that's, a, that's called a transgression. It's like in the, the cartoons where he draws the line and says, I dare you to step over that line. And he steps over the line He draws another one. <laughs> dare you to step over that line. God just keeps drawing lines and our hearts just keep stepping over it. And the more lines that are drawn the more transgression there is, which is more serious. I mean, you can fall into mud puddles and get dirty but when the law comes along and says don't jump there, you stomp with both feet. Or you want to. It's our example of the five-year-old or the sign that says don't walk on the grass. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean sin in general is excusable. I mean, transgression is even more wicked. It involves rebellion. You might think of it this way. When you fail to do something that you that you should, like, like honor your parents, that's wrong. When you fail to honor your parents, that's evil. That, that's wrong. But when your parents tell you to do something and you intentionally do the opposite, that's worse. It involves rebellion. It's a transgression. So before the Mosaic Law, we knew there was a God. We... We knew right and wrong. We failed to honor Him. We often did wrong, but, but when the law came, and this God said specifically, this is what I'm telling you not to do, we went ahead and did it. It, it stirred up rebellion in us. at what the Bible calls sinning with light rather than without it. Sinning in broad daylight rather than in the dark. Both are guilt-worthy. They'll send you to hell. But one adds the charge of rebellion to it, which turns it into a transgression. We make the same distinction in our criminal justice system because our criminal justice system is based on the Bible. We say, when, we say it's worse when it's premeditated Premeditated murder, meaning there's an awareness of what you're doing, and you do it anyway. There's first-degree murder versus manslaughter. There's still a dead body, but one involves an awareness and a willfulness and a rebellion when it's very clear you're not to do that. That's the first way. It stirs up rebellion. What else does it When the law interacts with someone who's unsaved or, or a sinner, and the danger even now of the, the voice in our flesh that rises at times. When the law is combined with, with sin, it, it stirs up a protest. It stirs up rebellion, but it also stirs up a protest. It it draws out a complaint. I mean, when the sinner hears the law and they actually consider what it says, it it stimulates an immediate objection in them. I mean, they say things like, I mean, no one could meet that. That that standard's too high. They they, they say the the bar that God demands me to keep is impossible to achieve, so it's unfair. It's just wrong, or or worse, it's cruel that God would have such a standard that no human being could meet. There's a protest when they see the law, hear the law. Instead of seeing their own failure, they blame God for having a standard that high. And you hear people say that, don't you? You probably said that. That's what I said. I mean, how can God demand perfection? when I mean, nobody's perfect. What am I doing? I'm protesting. Chafing in my heart. Complaining against God's standards. I mean, how wrong for God to hold out a stick so high that no one could ever reach it? I mean, is He doing that just to watch us jump? It's this, this, this attitude of the heart, whatever, whenever the, the purity of the law, the light of the law is, is actually shown. They're not asking as a question, they're protesting. They look at the law and they see they could never meet it and then conclude God is unjust to hold anyone to a standard that, that they couldn't keep. And in doing so, they they blame God for their own failings, Or they try to reduce it to some manageable level. I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That must mean the best I can do. The best I can. Love Him the best I can. And when they hear the Bible say no, that means that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength all of the time with absolute perfection. They cry foul. I protest. Or another thing that they say is, Okay, that's the standard, but but I need to be excused from it because of my circumstances, because of my situation. I mean I got a bad deal, I got a shorted deck, my parents didn't do this or that, or I was born with some problem, so I must be excused. And when the law says no one is excused, we think God is unreasonable. And we protest. Oh be careful. Be careful. Evaluating God like that. Your, your mind is too corrupted to rationalize against Him. He is pure and holy and righteous and good. You are corrupt. And your arms are too short to box with Him anymore. I mean, the standard of perfection is there to condemn you thoroughly. Because it's only when every possible ounce of oxygen is snuffed out of our lungs of self-sufficiency that we will actually look to God for grace. It's only when you have no hope in yourself whatsoever. It's only when you try to jump and you try to jump and you try to jump and you recognize there's no way I'm ever going to meet the standard. There is no hope. That, in that moment alone, is when you look to God's hope in His Son. That's why He does it. That's why the law condemns you so thoroughly. It makes no excuse for you. It's not for an evil end. It's for a glorious end. It's for a gracious end. It's a gracious thing for God to do that. You're doing people a horrible disservice by pulling the law down and saying things like, everybody does it and nobody's perfect and and, and, and God God loves you and takes you just the way that you are. Of course He does. But but, but you understand that once you see how far you've fallen short. That's not what people think face with the true mirror of the law. Finally, it stirs me up toward more sin. As a sinner, it, before a, as an unsafe person, it, the law stirred me up toward more sin. It stirred up rebellion, it stirred up protest, and it stirred up more sin. I mean, flatly being told not to do something makes me think about doing it. Don't answer this out loud, but have you ever read an article a news article about something salacious or wicked that somebody else did and found imaginations in your heart about that very thing? Picture images in your mind about what you read? Schreiner says, there is a perverse pleasure that sinners get in carrying out what is forbidden. People enjoy doing things in the dark that nobody knows, sneaking around. There's a perverse pleasure that you get in that. When the power of sin is stimulated, it, it creates all kinds of illicit desires, meaning the desire for what is forbidden. And that desire is stirred up by the very thing prohibited. I mean, the sick part of it is it's God's holy law that gives sin the very idea. You read Leviticus and you read things in the Bible about about what not to do. And those are the very things that, that sin latches hold of and puts ideas in your head to do. I mean, in one sense, what Paul means, it's what Paul means when he said, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had said, do not desire illicit things. And your flesh says, what, what illicit things? Hmm. Maybe some things I haven't considered. It's titillated to try them. Lord Jones says that's why sex education is so ignorant. It's so ignorant and bad. Because it informs people of things that they weren't aware of before. And then sin uses that new knowledge for evil. I and mean, sin imagines what it would be like. And those imaginations are sin of themselves. But then those imaginations turn into actions. And that's how sin works. Oh, tell them about it. I mean, if you don't tell them about them, and it's like you're hiding it from them, and then they'll discover it anyway, and they'll they'll think that, that it'll make it awkward. Lord John says, "Foolish man, you do not understand the nature of sin." I mean, the law telling me not to do something is used by sin to say, "Hey, maybe you should." It says, "Hey, if you're told not to, maybe." Maybe you're being kept from something good. It's the forbidden fruit in the garden. I mean, sin is so deceptive that that even staring at a garden forest full of perfect and beautiful fruit trees, all of which are mine, it focuses me on the one single tree that I'm told is not good for me. And sin leads me to want more of that one tree. More than anything else. You see, Paul's explaining why God brought in the law, specifically the law of Moses in its detailed and articulated form. What was its purpose? Well, its purpose was to make sin be seen for what it is, utterly sinful. Something that is so broken, you can never never overcome apart from His regenerating grace. Therefore, it shows us where the real problem lies. So, so in an act of grace, God brought in the law of Moses so that transgression would increase, and thereby it would reveal our need for Christ. Of course, the law had many other purposes. It regulated God's holy presence in the midst of unholy people. I mean, how, how do you take this this holy God that, that is now going to live in the land in the midst of unholy people before the Messiah comes? Something has to regulate that, that interaction. There would to be a sacrificial system a, and, 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 and a law... That was a purpose. The Old Covenant, it distinguished the people of Israel from the world. The days and the feasts and the, what I eat and what I don't and what I wear was to distinguish these are God's people and these are not. It brought blessing from obedience. I mean, Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him for righteousness. And then Abraham was given, given circumcision and Abraham expressed his faith in obedience the sign of the covenant that that was made. But it was grace and faith and the promise that came before before obedience. Blessing comes from from obedience. It was also how an unbelieving Jew expressed their faith. That's what Paul's dealing with here in Romans 7. What Paul's dealing with here in Romans 7 is, is none of that. What Paul's dealing with here in Romans 7 is why the law had to be set aside, how it was set aside, and And then he's answering, was the law blamable in any way? Those are the three issues that he's dealing with in chapter 7. The law had to be set aside so the new age could come. The old covenant had to go so the new covenant could come. Because in the new covenant, the new covenant has power. Power of the Spirit. The law couldn't save and it couldn't sanctify. So the law had to be set aside. Meaning that we died to it through the Lord Jesus Christ, but the law's not blamable in any way. It's holy and righteous and good. We're the problem. Sin in me is the problem. So let me ask you you see the real problem? You see how deep the problem is? It's so deep that it takes something holy, righteous, and good and misuses it. It's not God's standard that's the problem. And it's not because you can't meet the standard. It's sin dwelling in you like a power that takes even something as good as God's law and uses it to kill you. But thanks be to God that somebody else died in your place. <laughs> and if you'll come to Him in repentance and faith, then not only will He wipe the record clean, He'll, he'll take away the condemnation, but He'll actually give you a new heart give you a new spirit. He'll give you a a new ability. and He'll even give you a new desire for, for the very law that once did all of these bad things in you. But you have to come His way. and You have to come to Him. And I'm telling you this morning, until you get to the place where there is no oxygen left in your lungs, until you get to the place where you understand That you cannot do it. You cannot do it. You'll not reach out and receive this unbelievable gift of free grace that the Lord offers you in Jesus Christ. But if you stay under the reign of sin long like me, you'll get there. (laughs) Maybe you're there this morning, praise the Lord. And if you are, take it. It's free. It's free. It's granted to sinners. It's granted to people that do all of these things without any strings whatsoever. Total free forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ because that's what the God of the Bible is really like. He comes to us when we can never come to Him. does for us what we can never do in return and then makes us His treasure. Isn't that an amazing truth? That's good news, isn't it? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for the law. I do not like what it did in me. But I am so thankful that it did the work. And I'm so thankful that it has now been set aside in the, the condemning way, in the ruling way. And I'm so thankful that now the Spirit has come and regeneration, born again, that I have a new heart. And now with that new heart, I, I desire, I read the law differently, see it differently. I love it. And it guides me. And I thank you for that word by your grace. And I pray for anyone listening, who you've not done that work, they would see their need. And then by faith, they would reach the needs Jesus. Him alone, it's in His name we pray.